Hi, I'm Carol Pelletier-Radford, and you're listening to the Teaching with Light podcast. On this podcast, I'll share encouraging lessons I've learned through a long career in education, and I'll interview other teachers and leaders so they can share their wisdom with all of us. This series of the podcast is titled, Listen to Inspiring Leaders. Each of the 10 episodes introduces you to a former classroom teacher who is now leading in a new way to support the education community. As I planned this podcast series, I reached out to the leaders who have most inspired me. After scheduling all 10 interviews, I realized that all 10 of these leaders were women. And so this unplanned program development reminds us that there are many inspiring women leaders who are influencing public policy and education practices. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us today. Welcome to Episode 5 of the Inspiring Women Leaders series. Our podcast title for today is Be a Ripple. Let's face it, teachers are busy. The school day is packed. There are so many things to do. How can we encourage them to do one more thing? So suggesting that teachers share their ideas just becomes that one more thing in an already full day. Yet teachers who do make the effort to share with others tell me that when they squeeze it in to their busy day, the sharing becomes effortless and the experience is energizing. I believe mentor teachers say that they get more out of mentoring conversations than the beginning teacher does because they're, they're sharing some positive ideas and successful and positive ideas that have worked are full of positive energy and light. So these are the kind of conversations that are worth having. I've noticed throughout my career that we tend to reinvent the wheel in teaching. Experienced teachers learn and grow in their own classrooms, but they don't always have the opportunity to share what they've learned in an organized and systematic way. Now, I have heard some teachers say, I don't feel comfortable sharing my ideas with a group or standing up to do a presentation. I'm just not a teacher leader type. I just want to focus on my students. Now, these teachers are fabulous in the classroom. You know who they are. They've figured out so many of the great ways to teach, and yet they're uncertain about how to share their ideas. We need their ideas, so beginning teachers and other colleagues in the building who might be struggling don't have to keep reinventing the wheel. And that is why our guest today is so important. She and her co-founder have created ways for teachers to share successful ideas. I'm here today with Kat Johnston. Now, Kat and I met when she was assigned to oversee a grant I was leading for the Department of Education. She is smart, detail-oriented, and insightful. Her leadership style is more of a quiet and supportive style than being directive. Kat is the kind of leader who finds opportunities for others to shine and ripple out their ideas, while she is quietly working in the background to remove obstacles and open doors. Kat and I stayed connected long after the grant was completed and we continue to check in on each other. 
I have watched her grow into the inspiring leader she is today. So how do we create systems for teachers to easily share their ideas? How does an organization of former teachers bring the voices of current teachers to the forefront? That is what we will learn about today as we listen to Kat's journey of creating the Teacher Collaborative. Welcome, Kat. Hi, Carol. Thanks for having me. I'm so glad you could squeeze me in with your many things to do. And I'm so grateful that you're here to share your wonderful ideas with our audience today. So since this is a podcast about um, inspiring women leaders who are former classroom teachers, so we want to hear about your experience and your journey into teaching and where you taught and how, why you chose it. So. Let's hear your story. Sure. So I was a first grade teacher in North Carolina. That's where I'm originally from. Um, And I really developed my interest in teaching. I think like a lot of teachers, I played school when I was little. (laughs) Um, So I would take, you know, my stuffed animals, my little brother, I would sit them down, line them up. Um, make them practice letters, listen to the rules, <laughs> all of those. I love those. that. We can, many of us can relate to that. I don't know if your brother liked it that much, but. <laughs> I don't think he did. <laughs> um, and so that's really where it started. And then I um, had the opportunity in high school, actually, to work with our guidance counselor on a dropout prevention program for some struggling students who the district had identified as like out at risk of dropping out based on their grades and their attendance. Um, and that was really a, an eye-opening opportunity for me to like work closely with these students and to do some reteaching and some mentorship. So when it came time um, in college to pick a major, I really thought about what I enjoyed, what inspired me, um, what made me feel like I was making a difference. And that that experience was really at the forefront for me. And so it led me to apply to the School of Education um, at Chapel Hill. And then I went through a traditional teacher, teacher training program and did my student teaching, all of that good stuff. And then um, found a job as a first grade teacher. Now, your teaching experience uh, you have shared with me is limited because your husband ended up traveling and a, a new job. So how, you had one year in the classroom. Tell us a little bit about what that year was like. Yes. So that one year um, was an, a tremendous learning experience, <laughs> as yes. I'm sure everyone knows. Um, <laughs> I, you know, went into teaching thinking like, oh, like I'll do this for five or six years. And then I really want to learn more about education policy. Um, I did not expect to leave after a year, even though that is still by far the hardest year. I have two small children and I will still say that teaching is harder than that. Um, But, you know, my husband took a job that had us doing three six-month rotations in different cities, and teaching is not the kind of job that you can just, like, 
pack up and leave after a few months. Um, and so I made the transition out of the classroom earlier than I expected, earlier than I would have liked. I felt like I was finally finding my footing by the end of that first year. Um, but I found other opportunities to stay involved in education work. I've always worked in education. You mentioned earlier to me that you'd worked in some nonprofits and um, you did have an interest, though, in public policy, which is interesting. Why the interest in public policy? Yeah, I think I always had this idea that it, like policy has the opportunity to make really big change. And I think my parents like instilled in me at a very young age through different like volunteer opportunities and just, you know, their own support that like I could really do anything if I, if I wanted to. And to me, like policy was a lever that I was interested in exploring. And I kind of had this ideal thought that, oh, well, if you just figure out the right policy, won't that solve all of the education problems? <laughs> um, I don't feel that way anymore, <laughs> but early on, that was certainly my, my thought process. And I know some of your, so where did you go to high school and what were your different um, experiences in school that made you think about some of the policies that influence the ways schools are organized and made up? Yeah, so growing up in North Carolina, I actually started off going to, in kindergarten and first grade, going to a private Christian school. Um, then my mom made the decision to put me in public school and to actually put me in a magnet school. So I was bused from my neighborhood to kind of downtown, um, a much more urban setting in Charlotte, where I grew up. Um, and there I was like one of few white kids, to be really honest. Um, and that was just like, that was my elementary and my middle school experience. And it was incredible. <laughs> um, and then my world kind of changed when I went to my neighborhood high school in ninth grade. I showed up to a 2,500 student school and I knew two other kids. Um, and it was just starkly different. Um, the classes were very segregated. Um, there were lots of different tracks. Um, and all of a sudden, I went from being one of few white students to being like surrounded by white students. And that was very like different for me <laughs> and um, made me very curious about, you know, what what led to that, right? Like what are the systems and the structures that created such like drastically different um, school experiences within the same district for me. Thank you for sharing that because I think um, a lot of our listeners, we all grow up in different um, places, but we don't often see two different experiences within our, our same upbringing, within the same city, really. Right. And this does relate to public policies and the way schools are organized in, in the country. You did finally land a job, though. You settled, your husband settled so that you weren't mm -hmm. traveling, and you had an opportunity to work for the Department of Education. Um, before you share some of that, what was that transition like? What did you feel going into uh, being hired by the D Department of Ed as a young person. Tell, tell us a little bit about that. 
Yeah, so I'd really set my sights on the Department of Elementary and Secondary Education early on in my grad school experience. Um, so much of education policy happens at the state level. And so that was a system that I was just really curious about and wanted to have experience in. Um, and so I looked for any opportunity that I could there, um, as long as it was centered around working with teachers, which luckily a lot of um, education work does involve working with teachers. Um, and so I took a job as a Title IIA reviewer, grant reviewer. So Title IIA is a federal grant that states receive to support um, professional development for teachers. So I was all of a sudden, you know, in my mid to late 20s, reviewing these grant applications from superintendents across Massachusetts for thousands or millions of dollars about mm -hmm. how they were going to spend money to support teachers in service of supporting students learning. So what showed up for you that might have been missing in all of this funding that kind of led to where you are today in your own teacher collaborative work? But did you see any gaps or what's missing as you were looking at at these um, proposals? It's interesting like the two-way requirements included like some sort of stakeholder engagement so they had to have talked with parents with teachers even with students to a certain extent to get input on how they were spending the funds more often than not, though, like the descriptions of that engagement were really surface level. And I did not have a sense that like of how teachers voices were included in those decisions. Right. And so like, was this really meeting a need or was this following kind of what the district had done the previous year? Um, very good insight because sometimes they are doing that work, but they just didn't articulate it in the proposal, but sure. it was worth checking it out. And I, I believe you reading all those proposals led to your real investigation and development of lots of ways teachers could participate at the Department of Education. So I'm excited to hear some of your specific ideas and what you actually did to influence teachers' voices at the department. So Kat, let's talk about your work at the Department of Education. You had several leadership projects, and I, I am sure there were some favorites. Can you say something about two or three of the projects that involved teacher leadership or that drew you to the ways in which you felt you were making a difference? Sure. So um, I was at the department at a really exciting time. So it was the time of Race to the Top. Massachusetts had secured a federal Race to the Top grant um, and that just gave, I think, the State Department a unique opportunity to do some more like creative, out-of-the-box types of programs and direct service that previously um, they hadn't done. And so along with working with you on Project Success, which was a train-the-trainer mentoring program, um, I got to do some other teacher leadership work. One of the things that I really enjoyed about Project Success was our collaboration and brainstorming. And it also really gave me the chance to interact more directly with more teachers, um, which wasn't something I had been able to do in a lot of my other work at the State Department. 
Um, I will say like one of the kind of glaring problems is too strong of a word, but I guess missed opportunities that I saw pretty clearly was that um, the department communicated really directly with superintendents and then to a certain extent school leaders, but they had no formal channels for communicating with teachers. They had regular meetings with the head of the unions, um, but no direct teacher connections. And so that became something that I really advocated strongly for and worked to create more pathways um, for that teacher engagement work. So one of the things that um, I spearheaded there was starting the state's first teacher advisory cabinet. So this was a group of teachers who could give input and feedback on policies and programs at the state level. Um, it grew over time from you know, a small pilot of 15 to 20 teachers to two different um, groups, an Eastern Massachusetts group, a Western Massachusetts group, it incorporated teachers from all grade levels and subjects um, and really provided direct access to leaders at the department to hear from teachers. And so that, that is probably like one of my most favorite projects there. <laughs> um, and it all happened, you know, at the time of the new educator evaluation requirements and was just a really critical opportunity for teachers' voices to be heard. And I'm super proud that those cabinets continue today and that like they have found their inroad and really like having a structure to support that, that communication and that learning and hearing from teachers directly. And I feel that that cabinet work really uh, launched you into thinking about your own uh, company with your partner um, with Maria, the co-founder, and uh, moving you into that important mission that you have identified as teachers' voices. Um, I do yeah. want to mention a couple other projects, though, just for the audience to know the varied ways in which you were able to influence as a young young leader, you help to create guidance documents and to clarify very confusing uh, public policy requirements that teachers had trouble following the jargon. You made them very clear. And then you also sponsored me and others to do regional workshops because sometimes everyone driving into Boston, it's a it's problematic, and that's when we were having more face-to-face -face meetings. So I want to just acknowledge to you and the listeners that you did more uh, wide, widely known um, and specific uh, initiatives that really made a difference, Kat. But then you decided to leave. So you, you're leaving the department, security to start your own business. Tell us about that and why you decided to do it. Yes. So um, with the teacher advisory cabinets, we brought on a consultant to help support that work. And her name is Maria Fenwick. Um, so she is the founder and executive director of the Teacher Collaborative. And so she and I met through that work at the department um, and worked really closely together, got to know each other, um, and dreamed of like a world in which teacher leaders like just ran everything. 
I love it. Yay, the teachers are all clapping that are listening. <laughs> that, was, that was the dream. Like, how do we have teacher leadership like take over the world? Um, and so uh, around the summer of 2016, I went out on maternity leave with my first son and Maria and I kept brainstorming. We were like, what, how can we make this happen? Um, at the time, Maria was an independent consultant Um, And so she really made it her goal to like find enough funding to bring me on so that we could start thinking about what an organization dedicated to teacher voices and teacher leadership, what that would be. Um, And so she, she met her goal. (laughs) Um, She succeeded in securing a planning grant um, from the Nellie Mae Education Foundation that gave us enough of a runway that I could leave my job at the department um, and then go to join her to really start the Teacher Collaborative. So tell our audience what the Teacher Collaborative is, your, your elevator speech. If people went to your website, which I would like you to share, what would they find find there? Sure. So the Teacher Collaborative is really a Massachusetts-based community for now, though, of course, we're dreaming of taking over more states. (laughs) Um, But we are a community dedicated to empowering and supporting teachers so that they can really reimagine what teaching and learning looks like for students. So we believe that teachers are better together. That's kind of our hashtag, better together in MA. We think that by building spaces and opportunities for teachers to collaborate, to problem solve, to share the amazing work that they're doing every day, that that has the ability to improve student learning. It has the ability to really like make teachers feel connected and less isolated and that they are part of just an amazing profession um, that is well well respected um, and also really listened to in terms of their needs and the needs of the students and families that they support. So the so it's the teachercollaborative.com is that how org dot org thank you. The teachercollaborative.org And for our listeners, you could check this out, even though it is mostly Massachusetts. It's a great model for other states to look at that are interested in sharing teacher voices and rippling these ideas out. So, Kat, what does be a ripple mean to you in light of this conversation that we're having today? How does this relate to your vision? Yeah, so, you know, I think before when I started out and like wanted to do policy work, I really thought that that was like big and flashy and that that's how you make change, right? You make these like big sweeping decisions that impact lots of people and lots of systems. Um, But what I really have learned is just about all of the unintended consequences of those big sweeping changes, not that they aren't warranted at different times and that they can't really support you know, positive change and um, learning, but that oftentimes it's so frequently the small changes, right? Like the small moments um, that can really go a lot farther than you expect. So one thing that I would hear frequently at the department um, would be like a teacher complaining about a a requirement. And as we would unpack that problem, Um, often what we would learn is like, it wasn't rooted in the policy, it was rooted in the implementation. 
and teachers have like just such incredible power um, as the ones who are making 10,000 decisions a day, working with the students, working with the families, interpreting the standards and the rules. Like they just have such great opportunity to make change. Um, and that that is like incredibly powerful. Um, and your work with Maria is actually giving teachers an opportunity to share their ideas. So you're really talking about ways to implement a lot of the regulations and policies that are required so so we can see what it actually looks like in the classroom. And that is a little bit of a translation activity. And some teachers are better than that than others at, at doing that. So I appreciate your vision for for noticing that. So what's next for you uh, or, or, the, or the teacher collaborative? What's on, what's on your radar? What are you doing now? Yeah, so um, right now, a lot of our work is centered around reimagining learning. Um, so as we think about like this unprecedented school year in which teachers are switching between being in-person to hybrid to remote, um, what opportunities does that create beyond this year? So what are the ways that teachers are solving these problems, right? Like how do you engage students via Zoom? Um, like what does that look like? <laughs> um, but then what does that tell us about like ways that we can differentiate learning going forward? Or what does that mean about, you know, teachers showing their expertise in like digital tools versus anti-racist teaching versus social emotional learning supports, you know, what can we take with us from this year? Um, and how can we kind of uplift those bright spots and then use those to further conversations about changes we'd like to see in the profession and in education beyond this pandemic. And you're doing it through the teachers' voices, which is uh, not uh, the usual way that leadership and rippling happens. So I really acknowledge and appreciate you for doing that. So what's your advice for our listeners who want to either model or what you're doing or just ripple out some ideas with their teachers and make these opportunities available in their states or districts or wherever they're listening from? Yeah, I think my, well, two things. One, my favorite piece of advice after working at the department was like, don't ask for permission for forgiveness. <laughs> yes. um, like don't, don't wait for someone to like say like, yes or no, you should do that. Like if you feel like you have a rationale, you have the experience, you see a problem, you have an idea for what to do about it, like go and do it. Um, I love that. I love that. <laughs> and then I think the other thing is like, it's okay if it's small. Right. Like I think we get caught up in like trying to make like sweeping changes um, and those gloss over the like intricacies and the nuances and the individuals. Um, and so if if it's a small change, like don't underestimate the power that that can have. Because To me, that really is like the concept of the ripple. Right. Like it's one small like drop, but it can go really far. I love that. Thank you, Kat. Thank you for sharing your vision for teachers and for actually putting your big dreaming into action. So many of us have these big ideas, but to actually 
work with Maria and and actualize uh, your ideas to support the voices of teachers is what makes the the, the whole difference. Um, I like to end each podcast with an affirmation, and the ap- affirmation for this episode is my positive energy supports others. I want to thank our listeners for being with us today. I hope our conversation has inspired you to think of the magical ideas you have and to ripple them them out to others. Because when you do that, you are sprinkling positive energy out there. Thanks for joining us today, Kat. Thank you. Keep up the good work. Thank you for listening to the Teaching with Light podcast. For more wisdom and inspiration, you can purchase the Teaching with Light book at corwin.com forward slash teaching with light. That's corwin.com forward slash teaching with light.